Welcome to the Synaxis Podcast. A Synaxis is a liturgical gathering. It can also refer to an unveiling event. The Synaxis Podcast is a weekly gathering hosted by yours truly, Scott Jones, for the purpose of finding the life-giving healing word of the gospel and the words of the weekly lectionary passages. Join myself and a guest each week as we explore the lectionary text together. This is the place for gospel-rich, grace-saturated, and a properly worldly lens on the week's lectionary passages, all in 25 minutes or less. My guest is Mandy Smith, originally from Australia. She's lead pastor of University Christian Church, a campus and neighborhood congregation with its own fair trade cafe in Cincinnati, Ohio. She's also the author of several books, most recently The Vulnerable Pastor, and she's a friend. I give you Mandy Smith. Mandy, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's always a pleasure. How are things in Ohio? Things in Ohio are actually blossoming and blooming and doing all the things they should be doing. So it's a nice place to be at this time of year. As Ohio goes, so goes the nation. You know what's so funny? That, that <laughs> I feel like that, I feel like they say that about so many states, like as Missouri goes or as Michigan. I'm like, wait, it can't all be. Like there has to be one. St- it can't. That's just not. As you know, the it, nation goes, yeah, so we can't, goes it, the it nation. It can't all be like that. Well, Mandy, we've got some interesting texts to talk about. Yeah. The first the first one, which I think is just fascinating, is first mm. Samuel three, verses one through ten. Here we have uh we have Samuel, the boy Samuel, who was you know, his mother Hannah prays and prays and prays for this child only to have to, to give him up, right? Mm. And he's ministering to the Lord under Eli, and it's interesting that the author is that the word of the Lord was rare in those days. Visions were not mm. widespread. So there's kind of a sort of spiritual dryness, m- maybe lethargy, maybe both. And then we have Samuel, who who's, has bad eyesight, um, is there. And the Lord the Lord calls out to Samuel. And, you know, he he thinks it's Eli, but Eli doesn't call him, right? And mm. and so it's very, we have this very interesting interaction several times between them. And it, it's clear, it's, it's very interesting because it's sort of like, the opposite of Star Wars, right? Here, you know, you know, in Star Wars, you have these, like, l- the impatient Ben Kenobi, they're impatient Luke Skywalker with the older, wiser Jedi Master. Here you have mm. he, you have the Jedi Master priest who's, who's kind of inept mm. and the child prodigy who really can hear God. Interesting. Yeah. Who nobody's been hearing and who himself doesn't know God. Like, I think it says in here somewhere um, that he, he didn't know God yet. Where does it say that? Do you remember reading that in there somewhere? I'm looking here. Uh, I was for surprised Sa- to read it. Wait, Samuel or Eli? Samuel. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. It's Samuel. Says, oh, yeah. I don't have verses. Oh, Sam- yeah. It's Samuel now Sam- not yet, not know, yet the know the Lord. Lord. Yeah. Not yet the know the Lord. The Lord had not yet been revealed to him. So he's a total newcomer to this. Right. Right. Um, yeah. I think we underestimate. Um, I'm always fascinated, especially with the Hebrew Bible that... Um, they don't say, and that was really hard for him, or, you know, and he was really excited about that. Like we, I think they just assume that we know what it would have felt like to be in these, in this place. They're writing to people like themselves primarily, I guess. And so, um, it doesn't, I mean, I guess it says in one, in one passage there, like he was afraid to say, but I don't know, it's, I would like to, that to be unpacked, like for that one verse to be a, a verse um, in a passage or a chapter, I'd be like, how did Samuel wrestle with that fear, afraid to tell the vision to Eli, to speak, to be given something for the first time um, that probably many people have had in that time since not many people were hearing from the Lord, very first time for him, and then to have to say this thing against his own uh, mentor, you know, <laughs> for the first time, uh, I just, I would like to hear more about 
the serious hesitation and what went on in his mind and the real faithfulness and obedience that it took for him to actually do that. It's interesting. My friend Peter Lehart wrote this great commentary on First and Second Samuel called A Son to Me. It's one of those commentaries. It, it doesn't read like a commentary. It's actually fun to read. A lot of commentaries aren't very fun to read, but the prose mm. is really nice. But he talks about how... Um, in the in the previous chapter, you have this. He said one of the key themes in the, of the the previous chapter is um, hearing. Eli heard reports about his son, but they did not hear his rebuke. By contrast, Samuel heard the Lord speak, even when Eli did not, and he listened. And when when Hophni and Phineas closed their ears, Eli's sons mm-hmm. did not hear because the Lord had determined to eliminate them, just as the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he would not repent. So the Lord was hardening the hearts of the priests in order to destroy them in preparation for. A new exodus and there might be a connection between the name samuel and the hebrew wor- verb here which is used in the great israelite confession of faith the shema hmm. that's just right yeah. that's interesting faith comes by hearing and you, you think of you know we walk by faith and not by sight and here that that eli seems to be like not just dim of sight but he he can't it, it, he can't hear and i think that's a sort of a metaphor for discernment mm-hmm. and that samuel's response is speak i'm listening seems fitting to the hearing yeah yeah i like that i'm fascinated too with the fact that um god was with him the lord was with samuel and let none of his words fall to the ground so for me i'm i'm fascinated by the hearing and the speaking what does it mean that samuel's words didn't fall to the ground does that mean everybody heard him (laughs) every word he spoke uh was received by a human ear i don't know that sounds like a pretty good deal it obviously worked in this story right you think of like the seeds in the parable of the sower right the seeds that Mm. kind of get choked out and it seems like Mm. yeah there's not a choking out here Mm -hmm. yeah they fell on good ground (laughs) not just falling to the ground right right yeah i mean that's it's 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 uh, i wonder what kind of confidence you have preaching if you're if none of your words uh, yeah yeah that's pretty that's a pretty astounding thing to be able to say that none of your words fell to the ground but obviously this is an example of that that eli in spite of the fact that this is a a boy who is supposed to be his charge is challenging him he receives it it's pretty wild yeah it really it really is it's interesting too something that um that I found in Peter's commentary that I thought, because you think about Samuel uh, as he kind of gets older, you know, he, it's, I mean, it's kind of a, it, he's in a, he's in a sort of precarious position, right? Because he's called into service in a place that he'll have to, in some sense, undermine, right? I mean, Mm. Th- that's an off. I, it's interesting because I don't know what his relationship with Eli was like, but eventually, mm. you know, th- things are going to have to. Uh, things are. Not, he's going to. He's going to supersede this. His mentor, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's tricky. It reminds me of one of my favorite scenes in uh, Narnia Chronicle, the um, Prince Caspian, where all the Pevensey children are lost and Lucy sees Aslan and says, I think I see Aslan, we're supposed to follow. And they look and nobody else sees Aslan and they say, that's ridiculous, that looks like a much harder way, let's go this way. They get really lost and then they get annoyed and end up camping overnight and they don't know where they are and everyone's in a bad mood. And in the middle of the night, Lucy hears Aslan calling her again. And she wakes up and finds him in a clearing and he says, why didn't you follow me? She says, well, I couldn't. Nobody else wanted to come with me. And he just kind of looks at her (laughs) 
And Lucy says, well, I guess I could have followed, you know, I still would have had you. And uh, he says, well, I'm going to give you a chance to do to do this again. Go back and wake them all up now while they're grumpy and sleepy and tell them I've seen Aslan again. And um, so she goes back and Susan makes a big stink and says, I'm going to you're going to have to choose between me and Lucy because I'm staying. You know. <laughs> and Lucy just is so determined to follow the the leading of Aslan that she says, well, I'm going. I just have to go. And she so that. I'm sensing in this story too that tension between like for me to speak and follow what I'm hearing from the Lord is going to bring tension or I'm I'm afraid at least that it's going to bring tension with real human beings in my life. And the beautiful thing is Edmund finally says, no, I'm I'm going to follow Lucy too. And so they all eventually, some very grudgingly follow behind Lucy, um, not yet being able to see Aslan. And as they follow in the same order in which they were willing to follow Lucy, they begin to see Aslan. And uh, I don't know, I just really saw the connection there between that and this story that Samuel was willing to follow the word of the Lord, even if it threatened to bring conflict with somebody he had a deep connection to. It doesn't always go as well as it does in this story. And sometimes that conflict remains with the human beings, you know. Yeah. And Lightheart on that score says, you know, judged by psychological or sociological factors, Shiloh would be the last place we'd expect to find a faithful young priest or prophet in training. The fact that Samuel was able to hear the word of Yahweh at Shiloh is further proof that Yahweh himself was raising up new leadership in Israel. It's also significant that Samuel faithfully served before Eli despite the evils he had to encounter there. Mm -hmm. Samuel did not become the leader of Israel by seizing power, but by faithfully serving even at an ungodly and doomed sanctuary. In this, Mm -hmm. he foreshadowed David and also set a pattern for Christians who, who seek godly leadership. We must always remember that throwing down and setting up pillars is Yahweh's work, not ours. Mm, I like that. That's interesting because I've been having some conversations with some Christian brothers and sisters lately who have walked away from the church. And I get it. Like, I understand all of their frustrations and um, all the more reason why we need them, you know. And, And it takes a certain kind of perseverance to be a part of something that is not entirely what you like it to be. And if we just check out as soon as it stops representing our ideals entirely, then we don't get to be a part of actually reshaping it. But it's real. You know, it's hard to be in the middle of something and connected with either a local congregation or the broader work of the Christian thing um, when we're like cringing half the time because it doesn't represent things we want to be connected with. So I wonder how Samuel felt about that. Yeah, well, apparently it it kind of panned out for him at the end. (laughs) (laughs) It encourages me that sometimes it works out. Let's move on to Second Corinthians, which I know this is a sort of 
I think one of the most beautiful passages in Second Corinthians, mm, where it's one of my favorite, yeah, Second Corinthians four five through twelve, where Paul says, "We don't proclaim ourselves; we proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves slave as your slaves for Jesus' sake." And then, and then he talks about how we have this treasure in clay jars, so that it may be clear mm. that this extraordinary power belongs to God, does not come from us. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed; perplexed, but not driven to despair; persecuted, but not forsaken; struck down, but not destroyed; always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be made visible in our bodies. And this is a really interesting uh, passage here where it's sort of the agony and the ecstasy of, of the Christian life, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love the way that the lectionary brings different passages together and you read them kind of in a new way because of that juxtaposition. And after reading the, the Samuel story and then this, um, I could really relate in a new way to this passage because oftentimes it's the the persecution that we feel the feeling crushed and afflicted and and uh persecuted and struck down sometimes come from that obedience like Samuel had that you know he he says we proclaim Jesus as lord and that's oftentimes what gets us in trouble with Christians and with non-Christians you know to follow things that you sense from the spirit sometimes brings real conflict with other Christian people and also discomfort with people in, outside of the church. And so um, I just thought that was an interesting connection that I hadn't made with the Samuel story before. But um, I have been thinking in a new way about these clay jars recently. I love that image and God has used it in my life in, mer- in many ways because I feel like a clay jar all the time. And the question is if as a clay jar you're just going to like be so overwhelmed by how ordinary and fragile you feel that you don't do anything or if you're willing to let the treasure be in you and, and shine through you. But um, recently I've really felt prompted to imagine that the clay is still wet. And um, so this idea of uh, afflicted uh, but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, um, that if I imagine all the, you know, the things that are really hard for me as I'm trying to be faithful and if I imagine myself as this brittle set clay jar, then all of those things do feel like they're going to crush me. And I tell the Lord all the time, this is just too much. I can't handle all this, you know, it's painful. Stop it. It's going to break me. And, uh, and what if we are still clay vessels that we're not forsaken or crushed or driven to despair or destroyed that, that there is more capacity there if we are willing to make that choice to still be um, clay vessels, which um, has been reminding me of something I heard heard Richard Braw say when he was being interviewed by Krista Tippett. And um, he says, you know, the way to transformation is always order, disorder, reorder. You can't skip, (laughs) you can't skip the disorder part. And, um, and so I'd love to just stay in the order box constantly. And um, some people love the disorder box, but but God is always moving towards transformation, reorder. Um, and this this whole passage just felt like that to me, that, you know, you start with a clay vessel, you smash it down in order to make something bigger and better out of it. And that, that feels like that pain that he describes in this. And yet at the same time, um, we have to trust, as he says here, that the life of Jesus is what is being made visible. Yeah, and Paul says this, you know, I mean, it seems like there are these so-called super apostles or whatever that have come in and it's like prosperity kind of preachers. And they're like, hey, we're treasuring not clay jars. You know, we're treasuring, you know, mm. beautiful jars. And so, Paul, I mean, this is this is a very real thing for him. It, yeah. It's it's funny. I found this. I've never heard of this guy. I found this in Frank Lake's Clinical Theology. He quotes this um, guy, Evan Hopkins. 
who wrote a book hmm. called The Law of Liberty and the Spiritual Life, and he was part of the Keswick Movement in England. And he has some quotations from this guy, and he said this could have well been written from St. John the Cross. St. <laughs> John hmm. of the Cross. He says this, talking about these passages, just as in the cross we find the power which sets us free from the authority of darkness and translates us into the kingdom of God's dear son, so in that death also we possess the power that separates us from the self-life and keeps us in a condition of deliverance. Hmm. Some there are of God's children who seem to be always struggling to keep themselves up. You see a man in the water. In terror of sinking, he begins to struggle, and soon he finds that his struggling is in vain, as in spite of all his efforts, he sinks. But there is power in that very water to, to keep him afloat. Faith, it is true, is needed, and certain conditions must be fulfilled. One is that he must cease from struggling. Let him cast mm. himself on the water and cease from trying to keep himself from sinking. Let him wow. trust the water to bear him up. And instead mm. of sinking, he floats. So it is in finding the power that keeps us spiritually from falling. We must be ready and willing to abandon ourselves to his almighty keeping. The responsibility mm. of keeping us from, fa- from falling is his. The responsibility of trusting him to keep us is ours. Wow. Yeah, I love that wrestling between saving ourselves but versus receiving something and that tension of uh, we are always being given over to death. You know, that our bodies, um, we carry around in our bodies the death of Jesus so the life of Jesus may be made visible in our bodies. I mean, I'd rather not, thanks very much. <laughs> you know, I'd rather have my own life <laughs> and just keep it and not have to give mine up so that I can get his. But, um, yeah, God is really... Um, encouraged me with this in the last year or so because I've realized that, you know, when I talk to other people in my congregation who are really wrestling to let Jesus live in them and really dying to themselves, um, when I look at them, I see Jesus. When they explain to me how it feels, it feels like death. And um, and to apply that then to myself to remember that like what feels like death to me might look like Jesus to somebody else. And that makes it somehow more more doable to imagine that yeah and i mean i just think so much of the christian life right is the words of jesus you know if you try to save your life you'll lose it right yeah. but if you if you lose your life if you trust the water to hold you up you'll you'll, you'll find it you know you'll gain mm. you'll save mm. it so it's just it's very interesting like this yeah this, to cease the struggle one of my favorite passages in the whole bible is soon after this i think that's um Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. And uh, that's like, that's the whole gospel to me. That's the whole story. And, and it rhymes too, so. <laughs> I get no So speaking of Jesus, let's go on to the gospel reading here. We have, mm. this is a really interesting text where in the second chapter of Mark, we have this dispute with Jesus and the Pharisees because he tells the disciples are picking grain on the Sabbath and the Pharisees are quite perturbed by this and they're saying, why mm. are you doing this? And, and, you know, Jesus says, well, have you, you read what? You know, David and his companions did, you know, um, uh, when, you know, they ate on the sa- they ate of the bread of presence with the, the, you know, the height from the high priest, um, which is not lawful way, but priest eat. But, you know, th- there was an exception here. And, and this famous passage, the Sabbath was made for humankind and not humankind for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. And then he goes and cure- heals, you know, 
heal someone on the Sabbath mm-hmm. and, and kind of says, you know, what should we do on the Sabbath? You know, like, should mm-hmm. we, what's, what's good to do to save life or to kill? You know, so it's this very interesting tension between Jesus and the keepers and teachers of the law. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I get so frustrated on Jesus' behalf in this passage because it just almost feels like the, the Pharisees are just tippy-toeing around behind him, watching over his shoulder with everything he does. I know there's a lot of stories like that. And um, just see, like even I know law around food was huge for them, and but it still seems kind of petty because this whole passage is like they're upset with who Jesus eats with, they're upset with when Jesus eats, they're upset with how Jesus eats, they're upset with what Jesus eats, you know. And he's just like, oh, for goodness sake, you know. So um, this is the final one of the stories of, of that kind in this pass in this chapter that I'm sure he's just like, oh, will you just give me a break, you know. Um, but I was interested too to see that just a little bit before this passage, he's talking about old wine and new wineskins and sewing a patch of cloth on on fabric. And um, in light of the first Corinthians, the second Corinthians passage, it just reminded me of um, the thing, the one thing being filled with another thing. You know that we have this treasure in jars of clay, and Jesus is talking about new wine and old wineskins, and how the wineskins burst if they're not willing you know, if they're not appropriate for this new wine. Um, so it, I had never really made the connection between that before that we will become like the Pharisees if we want if we want to come to Jesus and say, like, I will accept you if you res- if you show yourself to me in, in a way that I already can understand it and just don't expect me to change or adapt in any way. Just just here, <laughs> pour yourself into this cup, you know, and uh, this this way in which he just he realizes that there's if they're not approaching him in the right way, he can't they can't even receive what it is that that he actually is inviting them into. Yeah, and the the whole point of the law is love, right? And so it's interesting. Romans ten says, you know, Jesus is the the telos namas, the end of the law, you know, or the or mm. NT writes as the climax of the covenant. I mean, it's kind of uh, it, it, and I've heard Tim Keller say you read the Bible one of two ways. It's either all about Jesus or all about you, you know. And so mm. often uh, a punctilious religious observance can become all about us, right? In our own right. Mm. Which is, Eugene Peterson says that. Uh, discipleship is focusing more and more on Christ's righteousness and less and less on our own. Hmm. There's this interesting, uh, Jacob Neusner wrote this book. He was a Jewish scholar called A Rabbi Follows Jesus. And he's, he writes it imagining he was somebody who was following Jesus in the first century. And he, he imagines himself hearing the Sermon on the Mount. And then, you know, after hearing it, it, it this whole day, he listens to Jesus teach. He goes and finds, you know, the local rabbi and retires for prayer and Torah study with the Jews of, you know, the local town. And they, they talk about the, what Jesus taught. Right. And the rabbi that is talking when Neusner says to him, he's citing from the Babylonian Talmud, Rabbi Simile expounded 613 commands were given to Moses, 365 negative ones corresponding to the number of days of the solar year, and 248 positive commandments corresponding to the parts of man's body. David came and reduced them to 11. Isaiah came and reduced them to 6. Isaiah came again reduced them to 2. Habakkuk further came and based them on 1, as it said, but the righteous shall live by his faith. And Neusner continues with this following dialogue. He says, you know, the rabbi says, so the master uh so he says to newsner is this what the sage jesus had to say newsner says not exactly but close what did he leave out nothing then what did he add 
himself. Mm. And, uh, and Benedict XVI, this book on Jesus comments on that dialogue, he says, this is the central point where the believing Jew Neusner experiences alarm at Jesus' message. And this is the central reason why he does not wish to follow Jesus, but remains with the eternal Israel, the centrality of Jesus' eye in his message, which gives mm. everything a new direction. At mm. this point, Neusner cites as evidence of this addition, Jesus' words to the rich young ruler, if a man, if you would be perfect, go sell all you have and come follow me. Perfection, the state of being holy as God is holy as demanded by the Torah, now consists in following jesus mm, mm, wow which is reminding me of the second corinthians passage that that's that's really who is filling us as we're setting aside our own control and desire to understand but i don't think that's enough for us i think we'd really rather have a set of rules i think truth truth in a human body is I don't know, a bit nebulous. <laughs> yeah, know, I th- to yeah, say, I think I'll just have Jesus, thanks. Like, okay. Let's, the idea, let's the idea that if we can follow the rules, that that will somehow make us feel good and trust in our own worthiness and manage mm. our anxiety. I, you know, I think that, like, it actually usually increases it, but it has the promise on the front end that it'll alleviate it. But it's, it's funny that I think resting and trusting in, in, in Jesus the righteous one is is our own righteousness. on the front end there's the anxiety of losing control but it's actually more restful whereas the law Mm. it seems less anxious on the front end because Mm. well i've got control it's like nobody wants to ride and drive in an automated controlled cars right even though all the the statistics say it would save so many lives because we like control right yeah, you uh, just lost me on that metaphor, Scott, because there's no way I'm getting in a car that I'm not No, driving. right. Exactly. Everybody, it's just human nature. <laughs> Nobody, but it's, it would be so much safer, but it, it's just so, a control, we feel the illusion of safety and control is so yep. profound. Oh, just, yes, yes, yes. I get it. Yeah. Yeah, it's scary to give all that over. It's interesting to me, too, how, um, you know, I'm in a lot of contexts where we, where, I'm, and I'm, I have a tendency to be like this too. It's always easier to, for me to see it in other people, but I know that I'm like this too, that um, rational, reasonable kinds of approaches to God feel so um, solid. And, um, and when some kind of emotional or experiential thing comes, there's this very sensible voice that says, well, that's just silly. Like, that's not real. That's very subjective. Don't trust that. And that feels very um, mature and sensible to listen to that voice. But we don't apply the same kind of critical thinking to our concern about that voice as we apply <laughs> to, um, you know, we're much more willing to step into the um, the negative. We, we trust the negative voice, the safe voice. We don't trust the one that might be drawing us towards joy and towards Jesus himself. Because, of course, we're worried that if we say, maybe that was Jesus prompting my spirit. Maybe that was Jesus calling my name like Samuel, you know, um, that might not work out. It might not have been Jesus and we might be disappointed and we might feel foolish. And um, to take that risk that really he might be engaging in our very bodies and spirits and minds um, is a huge risk to, to imagine that he wants to find us in those ways in addition to all of the the thinking reading understanding kinds of ways um but i i've had to wrestle myself with how much i um second guess those invitations into joy and i don't i don't second guess the voices of doubt or hesitation or cynicism yeah, and if we do take the risk to trust, he, he promises that we'll find out that his his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Yeah, 
I need to always remember that. As do we all, and I hope everyone preaching, listening, uh, uh, remembers that regularly. Manny, thanks for talking about these texts with me. Yeah, it's always a joy. Thanks for having me. Uh, we'll have you back soon. Peace, preachers. <laughs> thanks for listening to the Synaxis Podcast. If you like what you heard, please go to iTunes, give it a rating, write a review, and subscribe. Or pass it along to a friend via email or say something about it on social media. All of those things help so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks to Mandy for coming on the podcast. And thanks to you again for listening. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.